from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Census data collection delays brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic have extended the timeline for both congressional and state redistricting efforts across the nation. But while Illinois Democrats are already facing criticisms for how they've drawn their state maps, Missouri has yet to fully begin their redistricting efforts. On this edition of Politically Speaking, we're diving into the ongoing story that is redistricting. St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum and Eric Schmid, along with NPR Illinois' Hannah Meisel, join me to discuss how both Missouri and Illinois are tackling this once in a decade process. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, State House and Politics reporter Sarah Kellogg. Joining me is my co-host, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent and redistricting enthusiast, Jason Rosenbaum. So we're talking about redistricting, both Illinois and in Missouri. So we're kind of playing musical hosts in a way this week. So later in the episode, St. Louis Public Radio's Metro East reporter Eric Schmid will talk to NPR Illinois' State House reporter and editor Hannah Meisel to talk about redistricting in the Prairie State. But right now, we're talking about Missouri. And so I, again, kind of introduced, we're going to, Jason and I are going to kind of break down what's happening in Missouri and who to interview better than the person who's been one, a big enthusiast about it, but just, you know, been doing a lot of reporting about it. Yeah, I'm I'm really grateful that you're taking over the hosting duty, Sarah, because I really wouldn't want this to become a monologue where I'm talking to myself about redistricting, because even though I think very highly of myself, I don't think that would be a very interesting thing for listeners to, <laughs> to absorb. So redistricting in general has been less than a normal process already, with the pandemic setting back the data collection deadline for the census, which then delayed the data being released to the state so they, in fact, can redistrict. That process has taken longer just for all states across the country. However, Missouri is going to take even longer than some because there will not be a special session addressing redistricting. No, there won't. And that was honestly a surprise to me and a lot of people in the Missouri General Assembly. Uh, Governor Parson had said earlier this year after the legislative session was over that he was wary of calling special sessions where there was not a deal beforehand. So that's why there was a special session on renewing a critical tax to, that funds the Medicaid system because there was some semblance of a deal beforehand. And had there not been action on that, it would have been disastrous for the state's healthcare system. But he, he had indicated that there was going to be a special session on redistricting primarily because having a special session removes a lot of leverage to change the map, both from Democrats who would use the filibuster in the Senate to Republicans that may want to craft districts to help themselves or their friends. So now that it's going to be happening in the regular session, it totally changes the dynamics of how this process is going to go. And so what was the benefit of having a redistricting special session? Well, State Representative Dan Shaw, who is a Jefferson County Republican and the chairman of a House redistricting committee, basically explained to me that having it in isolation 
removes a lot of the ability of people to use other legislation to change the map. Here is what Representative Shaw told me soon after Parson announced his decision on the special session. One of the challenges we're going to have is uh, remaining focused on something that's very important to the people of Missouri, that's redistricting. We'll have several other things distracting us at the same time. And as I've said before, I think that there are like three categories of people that could influence the process during a regular session. One is the aforementioned Democrats. Uh, the Democrats don't have a huge amount of leverage to change the map, but they could potentially uh, filibuster everything in, that they can to prevent like a doomsday scenario where there's only one heavily Democratic district instead of two. The other are Republicans that want to change the map to their liking. So the, the best example that I brought up are St. Charles County Republicans that want St. Charles County to be completely in a district. And that's been a goal of St. Charles Republicans for several decades now. And the third are just people that are running for Congress because uh, Roy Blunt is not running for another term. There are a number of state legislators who are running for Congress in either central or southwest Missouri, and they may have an interest in shaping the map to help themselves or to smite their enemies. You know, if lawmakers can leverage other bills to get the outcome that they want, how will that affect the final map? I think it remains to be seen. Um, I, I, I've never been a big believer that Republicans were going to go for a seven to one map, which is kind of like redistricting speak for saying they're going to turn Emanuel Cleaver's district in Kansas City, which is a plus eight Democratic district now into like a plus 15 Republican district. I, I, I don't think that's going to happen because that would make the surrounding districts less Republican and prone to be competitive in a wave Democratic year. Um, but there are some people like Senate Majority Leader Caleb Rowden who believes that since the state is not losing a seat, like, say, in Illinois, that the political dynamics are, are much different and more predictable. And here's what Rowden had to say about that. I think we're in a good place to, to you know, build some consensus, both with folks who are making the decisions at the legislative level, as well as the, you know, congressional delegation. And, and I, I think we'll end up where we need to be. But, you know, one of the things that I always say is that redistricting is a, is a traditionally unpredictable process. So having certainty like now before the lines are being drawn or the horses are being traded is kind of a foolhardy exercise. And so I, I wouldn't be confident of anything um, until, you know, the, the courts have finally given the final blessing to whatever map comes out. Getting into kind of the redistricting itself. So first of all, kind of an overall, what has kind of this census data revealed for Missouri? You know, you said we're not going to lose a seat, but kind of what are some of the, you know, kind of what is the overall look of it? The biggest thing that I, I've seen from the actual census data is that the first district where, which includes all of St. Louis City and part of St. Louis County, is going to have to expand. And we'll, we'll get into what that means in a minute. But there's been a lot of population loss in the city of St. Louis and in the part of St. Louis County that encompasses the first district. So that's number one, and that's going to affect the entire map. I, I also think I saw that the eighth district in Southeast Missouri is also going to have to expand a little bit, which may make the seventh district, which is primarily like Springfield Joplin area, it may require that to get even smaller because 
that area of the state has been growing for years. Um, and the other districts, I, I think that there's going to have to be some changes, but they're not going to be monumental changes like we saw in 2011, where the state lost a seat. And that just caused a, a wholesale re reconfiguration on what the congressional districts looked like. I, I'm not really expecting that with this round of redistricting, just because since we're not losing a seat, there will have to be changes and some counties may go into other districts, but it's not going to be like 2011. So, you know, we're going into more specifics now. So what are going to be the main storylines when lawmakers come back regarding redistricting? So I see three. Um, one that I already mentioned and I'm going to delve into later on in the show is how to change the first district. The other is how to change the second district. I think that there's going to be an internal conflict among Republicans about whether to add more of St. Charles County into the second district, which is currently held by Congresswoman Ann Wagner, or add more of Jefferson County into the district. Or, or maybe you do a little of both, um, but I think it's going to probably be one or the other just because of the way uh, the, the redistricting works. The other is whether Republicans will decide to do a 6-2 or 7-1 map and whether to keep Emanuel Cleaver's district as a fairly safe Democratic district or basically make it impossible for him to win re-election. I, I, I've mentioned this on other shows, but I really need to hammer this point home as much as possible. Yes, Emanuel Cleaver is an African-American congressman, but no, his district is not a minority majority district. And there is nothing stopping Republicans from turning that into a very Republican district if they want to. So you recently wrote about the historical conflict between white and black Democrats in the first district. Can you elaborate on what you found? This is one of the most interesting redistricting stories in Missouri politics that not many people really like to talk about openly. And that is that there has been this simmering resentment and conflict between black Democrats and white Democrats in St. Louis over the fact that the first district is a minority majority district. For many white Democrats, they see the first district as a classic example of racial gerrymandering, where you pack as many African-Americans who overwhelmingly vote Democratic into one district, which would guarantee that a Black congressman is continually elected, and then make the surrounding districts more Republican. As uh, Yuri Radensky of the Brennan Center, a, a left of center group that follows redistricting policy said, this doesn't always turn out good for African-Americans. It is important for Black communities, particularly in the St. Louis area, to receive effective representation. Whether or not Black lawmakers need to uh, create a political alliance with Republicans in order to make that happen is a different question. Uh, on the flip side, though, a lot of Black Democrats in St. Louis see white Democrats as openly hostile to their political aspirations. And oftentimes white and black Democrats have markedly different policy goals. And as State Representative Lakeisha Bosley told me, this is about more than just a map. This is about representation for a historically disadvantaged community. In this case, 
African-Americans in St. Louis. As a African-American woman, um, I think it's imperative to be able to see representation. Like you need to see yourself in these positions. And not only that, you're bringing a different voice of someone who's come from um, the areas of we talked about underserved all the time. This is an interesting philosophical question. But as I mentioned before, because the Voting Rights Act really makes it difficult to substantially reduce the black population in a congressional district, it's not going to happen, even if Democrats wanted it to happen. And even if the VRA wasn't there, Republicans have every incentive to keep the first district the way it is, because it's going to make places like the second district more Republican. So the first district, what you know, the district we're talking about, that is Cori Bush's district. So, you know, what does she think about all of this? So Cori Bush defeated Congressman Lacey Clay, who whose father, Bill Clay, was very open about talking about his his working with Republicans to get the first district up and running. And and Bill Clay had this mantra that he did not say originally, but he popularized. There are no permanent friends. There are no permanent enemies, only permanent interests. Uh, What Cori Bush told me is that there are benefits to the first district being a minority majority district or a minority plurality district, but she doesn't have a lot of trust in Republicans based on their actions in other states and their actions in Missouri. Here is a clip from my conversation with Congresswoman Bush. Republicans in the state legislature, um, you know, are in control of this process. And that gives me a lot of concern. Um, You know, the anti-voting laws we've seen passed by Republican state legislatures across this country, like just look at the unfathomable extremist laws that have been pushed in Texas, you know, um, very recently. You know, those have been devastating for our democracy. And after the unconstitutional push to block voter pass Medicaid expansion, I'm extremely concerned about the anti-democratic tendencies, and I'm calling them anti-democratic, anti-democratic tendencies of the Missouri um, Republican Party. So the fact remains, though, that regardless of what Cori Bush may may want or may not want, um, she's not going to be driving the train on what the first district looks like. It's going to be Republicans, and it's going to potentially be African-American Democrats that may want to run against Cori Bush one day. Thank you so much, Jason, for talking with me about this. You know, it's a lot of questions, a lot of topics that, you know, in part won't get answered until the next year. But, you know, we're, we're we, you know, lots of hints and, and definitely, you know, lots of breadcrumbs as to how it'll go. Yeah, definitely. And I'll be back later in the show to answer yeah. your questions. Now it's time to talk about Illinois. We'll be right back after this break. And we're back on Politically Speaking. I'm joined now by St. Louis Public Radio's Metro East reporter. Eric Schmidt. And NPR Illinois' State House reporter and editor. Hannah Meisel. And so we're moving on from Missouri, where the map-making process has yet to start, and now to Illinois, where the maps have been created and updated. Eric, you have questions for Hannah, so let's get to it. Yes, I do. This redistricting mess i think it's a mess that's been going on in illinois uh is first off is is that a good way to describe it a mess uh it is a controlled mess but uh messy nonetheless for sure for sure i think from that uh so democrats they passed a 
redistricting maps. They passed new maps in back in June or before a June deadline. Why did they pass new ones? Well, so it was always expected that uh, the Democrats would come back and pass new maps that were based on actual census data because, uh, you know, Democrats didn't want to give up their political advantage by waiting for the census data, which of course was delayed by COVID. And so they used what's called American Community Survey data. And they promised that it wouldn't be uh, very much off from actual census data, but by the time uh, that data did actually come out in mid-August, turns out it was pretty off. And not everywhere, but in certain key districts, um, the difference in population between the most populous district and the least populous district under the maps passed in May was about 30%, which is way, way beyond the 10% limit uh, that's allowed by the Supreme Court. And so, again, I always knew they'd have to do it, but uh, it was more of an emergency than I think anyone could have predicted. And, you know, they already had a couple of court challenges and they wanted to fix it before um, you know, those court challenges went any further. Um, but again, it very, very complicated stuff. And so they, they had to fix it. And not to mention, these are just the legislative maps. We haven't even touched congressional maps yet. My biggest question, I, I think, coming into this is there are already federal cases that are hap- that are going on. You have Republicans challenging in federal court. You have a uh, Mexican uh, legal defense fund also challenging. And these cases were filed based on the maps that were passed back in May. So how do the new maps affect those cases? Well, that's also super interesting. The Democrats had to be pretty careful when they came back in session uh, in late August to correct those maps because they didn't necessarily want to admit that the maps that they passed in May were unconstitutional because they didn't want to give Republicans or the uh, Latino uh, group, the voting rights group who is also challenging, as you mentioned, any more ammo for their cases. But at the same time, you know, they pretty much did admit that, yeah, what we passed in May is non-actionable. And so a federal judge, you know, they had been asked to, uh, you know, slow down the process in order to uh, let these minority voting rights groups take a look at the proposed new maps that would replace the ones passed in May. Uh, Democrats did not oblige to that request because they wanted to get them done before uh, another hearing in the cases that took place the very next day after the maps passed. And um, so it remains to be seen. The The judge had some, uh, you know, interesting comments, but you never want to read, you know, too much into what's called a status hearing. Uh, it's no official opinion or order or anything like that. But, you know, it, as the cases drag on in the next few months, um, it'll be really interesting to see how he and another couple of federal judges who are supposed to be overseeing the cases do actually interpret that move. And this might be a little bit speculative on on your end, but what is what is likely to happen from these federal cases? Because they're, they're still challenging uh, that these districts are, are not fair, even the new maps. I mean, could it come back that the process would have to start over or, or what remedies are, are likely to come from from the court in this case? So that's what the Republican want. Republicans want. They want the uh, federal judge to reset the clock on the entire process. They want to 
have the uh, judges rule that since the maps that were passed in May were unconstitutional, they want to void it and as if they never happened. So uh, the clock is reset on this process to appoint a bipartisan commission to redo the maps. And uh, in Illinois' uh, history under our constitution, uh, our 1970 constitution, this process has played out uh, you know, many times. And for the most part, the process deadlocks and it gives the parties a 50-50 chance to control the process. A name is uh, you know, drawn out of a hat or a crystal bowl as it was uh, in 1990. And you know, Republicans essentially want a 50-50 chance to be able to control the maps and gain some political relevancy back in Illinois. But is that actually likely to happen, that, that the courts would say, you know, we're going to blow up this whole process and you have to start over? I don't think so. I think, you know, the one thing that we can kind of read into the is, you know, both what the judges comments last week and uh, prior case law is that it's very unlikely, especially because um, you know, federal courts are very loath to tell state officials to follow state law. It's a matter of jurisdiction. But, you know, what the Latino minority voting rights group wants is for the process to be taken out of Democrats' hands and to be controlled by a panel of judges, a special magistrate, what have you, anyone but the lawmakers who are in charge or have been in charge of the process so far, uh, because they feel as if, you know, especially after the new maps, they feel as if, sure, Democrats went back and they fixed the population issues that was more of a low-hanging fruit, but uh, they and uh, a group that represents African-American voters and other voting race groups, they, they say, wait, these maps actually represent our communities even less. We are given even fewer districts, uh, you know, to represent our communities than we've had in the past 10 years. And so that does create uh, another constitutional challenge uh, for Democrats. But I mean, I don't think that they're going to come back and redo the legislative maps a third time. Uh, I guess that remains to be seen. But that's that's probably the more likely outcome if the uh, federal court decides to step in at all is that they would supervise the redrawing of uh, certain districts uh, to give more fair representation. Well, I think that this is a really interesting, to me, it seems like it might be a foreshadowing event for the congressional redistricting, which reaching out to some uh, experts in that field, it, it seems like that's kind of all over the place. And we'll, we'll get into a little bit of that. Um, but I think the I wonder, does the lawsuit that's brought by Maldef uh, for the state maps, does that foreshadow what might come from the congressional uh, maps? Because pouring over the census data, it shows that the Latino population in and around Chicago increased. You know, some of the people I've spoken to have said that there should probably be two safer, you know, quote unquote, Latino districts there um, to compensate for a growing population. So, so is the lawsuit from Maldef a precursor to what might happen for the congressional side? I think that that's uh, a main reason that the congressional map drawing has been held off this long. Uh, because Illinois, 
for Democrats, Illinois is pretty critical. Illinois is, you know, yes, we are losing a congressional seat. We're going from 18 to 17 because of our net population loss in the last decade. But, you know, we're one of the blue states whose, you know, map drawing process is controlled politically and Democrats nationally are counting on Illinois to be able to help maintain Democrats thin control of the US House. I mean, a ton of states in the last uh, 10 years, especially, but you know, going back 20 years, there's been a nationwide strategy of, uh, you know, Republicans playing the very, very long game and or, you know, in being able to uh, draw the maps to their advantage uh, to, you know, not only control state houses, but affect what happens in Congress too. And so, you know, being able to eliminate a Republican seat and, you know, at least one, uh, we, have, we have five Republican seats now, 13 Democrats, and, you know, p- to be able to, uh, you know, control that ratio is something that Democrats in Illinois want. And like I said, Democrats at a national level also are counting on. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a. I think that's a good. That's a good point about wanting to control at the national level. Covering this issue earlier this year, some of the experts I spoke to had mentioned that Democrats might want to play it a little bit more conservative in Illinois and just protect the 13 seats that they already have. But based on what you've just said, maybe that might not be the case. I mean, are the indications that. Uh, there's pressure on the national level for Illinois Democrats to swing for the fences and not just protect 13 seats, but go for 14 or try and flip one while the state loses um, a, a seat at the level. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, history tells us that Republicans have not been successful in challenging Democratic made maps in Illinois' most recent history. Um, it's really the I mean, Maldef is truly the only group who has been, uh, you know, successful in challenging the map. So I think that Democrats, for the most part, feel safe. Uh, <laughs> I guess you can say screwing over Republicans. They don't feel as if they're going to have uh, much legal uh, recourse there um, or, you know, legal consequences, as it were. But, um, you know, they want to be more careful, as you said, around those Latino districts, because, you know, not just in Illinois, but most of the country, uh, due to, you know, just natural population growth and the way that immigration has been going, but also a change in how the census asked this question, we saw a ton of growth in uh, Latinos in uh, the nation. And so it's, it's a group that, you know, Democrats want to keep in their pocket, but we did see, I mean, this past fall in the uh, 2020 election, we saw, I want to say something like 30% of Latinos actually uh, vote for Trump. And so it's not a, it's not a group that Democrats have the strongest hold, you know, it's not, they didn't, they don't have the strong, the hold that they thought they did. Well, that is Hannah Meisel from NPR Illinois. Thank you so much for joining us. I am going to hand it back over to Sarah and fade into the background. Yeah, thanks to you both for breaking down the state of redistricting in Illinois. And so next we'll answer some of your questions on redistricting. We'll be right back.
And we're back on Politically Speaking for the question and answer portion of the show. I'm joined by St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum and Eric Schmid and NPR Illinois' Hannah Meisel. We've been asking listeners what questions they have about redistricting, and now it's time to answer them. So the first question is more Missouri-focused, and so are the lines for MO1 and MO2 going to change, and what will the new districts look like? Jason, I think that's for you. The lines are absolutely going to change because, as I mentioned on the outset of the show, the first district has to gain close to 50,000 people. And everywhere around the first district is, is heavily Democratic turf. So by, by that logic, when the first district expands its borders and takes areas from the second district, it's going to make the second district less democratic. Right now, the second district is basically a 50-50 district on a presidential level, even though Ann Wagner won her election over Jill Shoup by about six points. I was actually doing a little bit of redistricting gamesmanship with this great website called Dave's Redistricting. And regardless of whether you expand the first district into Northwest St. Louis County, so like the Maryland Heights area, or if you expand it primarily to Webster Groves or Kirkwood, either way, you're making the second district a plus seven or a plus eight Republican district. So, and next question can be um, for anyone and probably want to talk about Missouri and Illinois. So who will ultimately decide the final maps? Uh, For congressional redistricting, it will be the legislature and the governor. For state legislative redistricting, which you really haven't talked about much on this show, it's going to be uh, commissions that have first crack at it. I'm not confident those commissions will come up with a map by the the constitutionally mandated deadline, which means uh, a bunch of appellate judges will get to draw the maps. And I know that those appellate judges are just overjoyed that they're going to have to be brought into the redistricting process. And in Illinois, um, we'll see with the legislative maps, we'll see if the federal judges let uh, the maps stand or if they're going to step in and say, you know, we've got this from here, we will oversee it, or we'll appoint a special magistrate to oversee that. But, um, you know, on the congressional level, they haven't even been drawn yet. And so we'll see, again, how many legal challenges that gets, and uh, whether the legislature's ideas for those district lines are let stand, or if federal judges want to step in on that too. For Missouri, but we can talk about Illinois, too. What recourse does a, and our listener used the word grumpy, uh, political party have um, if they don't like the map? So for congressional redistricting, there will almost certainly be a lawsuit. There was a lawsuit in 2011 after that map was drawn. The problem that detractors of the map are going to have is... Uh, the, if you look at the Missouri Constitution, the, the only requirements for congressional redistricting involve contiguousness and compactness. And there was a lawsuit over that exact standard in 2011, where you had districts that were, by all objective measures, not compact at all, and it was upheld. So I think that the bar to overturn a congressional map in Missouri is extraordinarily high. For state legislative redistricting, there are a lot more factors that go into districts. So I guess the recourse for that too will be going to like the Missouri Supreme Court if they don't like what either the commissions or the appellate judges uh, have. And in in Illinois, I I think we're seeing what 
a grumpy part political party does when they are unhappy with it. It's it's challenging based off of lawsuits, trying to uh, get a remedy through the courts. Uh, in the case of Illinois, we're seeing them uh, a lot of the challenges have been on uh, constitutionality, whether or not the uh, maps violate like one vote per person clause of, of the U.S. Constitution. And, and we're seeing it on the federal level, most likely because the uh, state courts would not uh, be amenable to these um, to these kinds of arguments. Uh, and I, I think that it's the same thing. You, you can have groups challenge on lawsuit. Uh, the, the, you can file a suit and, and challenge it, but it has to be proving that the maps violate some kind of law, whether that be state or, or federal. And that's uh, a high bar to to prove in many cases. Our final listener question is, is there any indication or sense that decisions made in one state's congressional redistricting could impact decisions made in the other? For example, would Republicans in Missouri be more likely to pass an aggressive map if Illinois Democrats do it first or vice versa? That That is a great question. I think that Republicans will do whatever they want and use whatever pretext they want. But I do think, and I've said this before, I think that what's happening in Illinois just has killed this national democratic narrative that gerrymandering only happens in Republican states. And I, I they, they were trying to make that argument, especially in 2018, when Democratic groups spent millions of dollars here to try to change the redistricting process and insinuating that only Republican states gerrymander. And, you know, I actually am, am amenable to the argument that Democrats shouldn't unilaterally disarm if Republicans are aggressively gerrymandering in Texas, Georgia, North Carolina, and elsewhere. But I don't really ever want to hear from Democratic groups again that it's only Republican states doing it. Because Illinois has been doing this for years, and I think that Illinois Democrats have officially killed this narrative that only Republicans aggressively gerrymander. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um throughout this process, Republicans have loved to quote back uh, what President Barack Obama said when he visited the legislature in 2016 to uh, give a speech about, you know, kind of our political climate. It was quite an interesting day. But, uh, you know, part of his hour-long speech was dedicated to, um, you know, gerrymandering. But, you know, the the Republicans don't get it quite right. You know, obviously the president did, you know, shide uh, Illinois Democrats for their aggressive redistricting, but he also said that, you know, if it has, like, it needs to be eliminated, but it also needs to be eliminated at, you know, everywhere. And, you know, the disarmament, um, you know, argument is like, well, why would you, for the sake of good government, why would you also, or why would you give up your advantage when you know that policy is at stake? And so it's a really hard, uh, you know, emotional issue. It was really interesting to watch Democrats in May because for so many weeks and months, they were uh, pretty sterile about the process. Um, you know, they, in which I finally, I don't know if I should have realized this earlier, but, you know, it was for the sake of protecting themselves as much as possible about coming legal action. But once they passed uh, one component of the uh, maps, which was kind of the legislative intent, and they were only debating on the kind of cold hard, like these are the lines, these are the uh, 
the geographic dividing points, the arguments finally did get really emotional and it was on both sides and it was about identity as so many things are these days uh, about political identity, about what kind of state, what kind of country we want to live in. Um, but the, the other thing to your other, to your question, I, in the spring, a lot of the good government and minority voting rights advocacy groups uh, were afraid that if Illinois set this precedent using the American Community Survey data to draw their maps instead of waiting for census data, uh, that other states would follow suit. Um, you know, back in the spring, I think states like Oklahoma, which of course is controlled by Republicans, said that they were going to go ahead and use ACS data. Um, but I, I'm not sure that a lot of states have followed suit. So, you know, the challenges to Illinois' legislative maps are kind of on new legal ground. This has never happened before. And I think some states who might have been, um, you know, watching to see if they could get away with it, whether they're controlled by Republican Democrats, probably, um, you know, very interested in the outcome of the Illinois cases. But of course, um, just because federal judges rule here, um, one way doesn't mean they're always going to rule uh, the same way in another district, um, you know, especially if those things are not appealed all the way up, uh, you know, district mismatch sometimes does happen. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. You tell me if uh, Binzari is going to react to our maps. Um, it'll be really interesting. I don't necessarily think that Missouri lawmakers are going to be, well, I, I don't necessarily think that they really pay that much attention to Illinois except for to dunk on them when things go wrong. Uh, but that's a different point. I think philosophically speaking, the answer to that question is yes, that other states do affect how or different states affect other states and how they do redistricting, but it's not necessarily like a lawmakers in Missouri are watching Illinois and saying, oh my goodness, they really gerrymandered the hell out of the maps here, so we're going to do the same in our state. It's not as transactional in my interpretation of it. I think it's more of a general, well, everybody's kind of doing it, so we're just going to also do it because the the whole country isn't fair, so why should we be fair um, as well, that that's the way that's the way that that I see the um, states affecting each other. It's like, well, we if you're in Illinois, you can say we know that that uh, state lawmakers in Texas and Florida and Georgia are most likely going to do things, uh, write maps that are heavily in favor of their party. So their argument would be, why should we uh, make maps uh fair maps out of principle when we know that in other states that that isn't happening but i don't think it's something where uh all of a sudden lawmakers wake up and go wow these that those democrats in illinois sure gerrymandered so so we want to follow suit it, it's it's more of like a, a chicken or egg scenario and and that's kind of why we're in this mess in my opinion so that concludes our questions. Thank you all so much for coming on the podcast to talk about this ongoing story of redistricting. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri, St. Louis. You can follow me at Sarah K. Kellogg on Twitter. You can follow Jason at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Eric at 
I actively don't use Twitter anymore. But if you want to see the latest stories from me, you can go to stlpr.org slash people slash Eric dash Schmid. And Hannah, where can people find you on social media? At Hannah Meisel. All right. That's it. Until next time. So long. From St. Louis Public Radio, this is Politically Speaking.